Welcome to the Fire These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century from the periphery. I'm your host, Jure Ayub, and my goal is to use this platform to connect with activists, scholars, writers, and other weird folks from around the world to link our stories and interests up. Join me as we get into all sorts of futurisms, from solar punk to degrowth, as we explore meaningful ways of creating links between the peoples on the periphery, and as we explore various topics from tech to anti-authoritarian politics, feminism, abolitionism, decolonialism, anti-racism, and all the other fun-isms in between. This podcast is ad-free and accessible to everyone thanks to the generous donations of Patreon supporters on patreon.com slash fire these times. For as little as $5 a month or $50 a year, you can help keep this podcast independent that way. If you're a student, unemployed, or in any kind of financial difficulties, you can support with $2 a month or $20 a year. There are also other methods such as on PayPal or buymeacoffee.com, and you can find the relevant links in the description below or on the website. My goal is to make this project financially sustainable so that I can work on producing valuable content on a regular basis such as this podcast, the newsletter, my essays, various online resources, and hopefully eventually YouTube essays as well. And if you like the content of this podcast, you can also check out the newsletter. In that newsletter, which I release on a quasi-monthly basis, I reflect on some of the topics discussed on this podcast and try to take them a bit further. The newsletter is free and you can get it by simply subscribing directly on the website. The Fire These Times is named after the James Baldwin book The Fire Next Time and the music is by Ibrahim Youssef. Thank you for listening and take care. Hey everyone, so this is a pretty special episode because I'm actually the guest. This is a crossover episode that I've had with the New Lines podcast, which is hosted by Faisal Yafai and Lydia Wilson. And we're doing the crossover episode uh, to talk about the so-called post-war period in Lebanon. Now, as with many of these topics that have to do with Lebanon, I want to emphasize that although I am speaking about Lebanon and this is a conversation about Lebanon, the underlying themes that I'm talking about are not limited to that specific country in the Eastern Mediterranean, which happens to be the one where I grew up. In fact, I would argue that a lot of what we talked about today is relevant in the Bosnian context, is relevant in the Northern Ireland context, is and would probably be relevant in the Syrian context and beyond. My main argument in this episode is that While what we're calling the war or the civil war or the Lebanese wars, i.e. that period between 1975 and 1990, officially ended in 1990, the conflict and the underlying causes of that conflict or those conflicts in the plural were never truly resolved. And I still think that to this day, 30 years on, effectively my entire life is at least to a large extent a consequence of that agreement. And I think that the crises that we're living through today in Lebanon are at least in part a consequence of not just that agreement specifically, but the entire political structure that made that agreement possible in the first place. I still think in many ways that what we refer to as the post-war is very much still a continuation of the so-called civil war by other means. Please check out the New Lines podcast, as well as obviously the website, newlinesmag.com, for some of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond. And as always, thank you for listening and take care. Right. Well, the kind of funny thing is that I, it wasn't something that I was actually looking at in the first place. I was I was exploring temporality in post-war Lebanese cinema. That's sort of the overarching theme and title and it still is to this day 
But the more I looked into it, and the more I looked into these films that were produced in the so-called post-war, so for those who don't know, we're referring to the period since 1990, the post-war, there was obviously referred to, to the period between 1975 and 1990, usually referred to as the Lebanese Civil War in English. In Arabic, sometimes euphemistically referred to as Ahdes, so like the events. Well, I usually refer to them in the plural. And the reason I do so is this thing that I started noticing that all of these films produced in the 90s, and it's not just films, but I focus on films, in the 90s and early 2000s and really to this day, that have the war, and here I'm putting it in quotation, in either as its you know, main theme of the film or maybe in background, you know, as part of the plot in one way or another, is never truly resolved. There's always some kind of hauntings. There's always sometimes literal hauntings. You know, films like Phantom Beirut, where you literally have someone coming back from the dead. You have some films where you have a vampire, other films where you have sort of like ghostly apparitions, if you want. So again, this theme of haunting keeps on uh, repeating itself time and time again. And at every point, all of those films I look at, I mean, you have this theme of, you have this issue, if you want, this unresolved issue, like something happened in the past, and yet we are still living with it. And if we're still living with it, when did it truly end? And that's sort of how it started. And then I, you know, one thing leads to another, as these things often do in the PhD. And I started asking myself, well, what are we referring to when we're talking about the post-war? On a very basic level, you want to separate between what was happening in the 70s and 80s and what was happening, what's been happening since the 90s. And, you know, sure, as a shorthand, I can understand that. And I would still use it, even in the doctorate, I would use the post-war, I would say post-war. I just put it in quotations. Um, but then I, you sort of ask yourself, well, if it started in the 90s, was it all of Lebanon that had that period in the 90s? Was it really that there was a war that ended in 1990 and then there was a period of peace, supposedly, as so sort of what it's impl is implied by the end of the war, is that now we have peace. But the 1990s still had two separate military occupations, the Israeli one in the south and the Assad regime's one de facto uh, in the rest of the country. Those wouldn't end uh, before the year 2000 and the year 2005, respectively. And then what followed was the 2006 war and then between Israel and Hezbollah and the 2008 conflict, which is sometimes actually referred to as a mini civil war. So you have a mini civil war that happened in the so-called post-war. And then you just go on and on and on. All of the series of assassinations since 2005 and to the present day, obviously the explosion in 2020, the ongoing crisis, there's just something that feels a bit odd about calling it post-war only, which is why when I say, when I talk about it, I either say so-called post-war, if I'm speaking in English, or I'm, you know, if I'm writing, I'll put it in quotations because at the very least it invites some questions as to, well, why are we, why are we not taking this for granted? What is it about this term that it's, what does it hide, if we want to put it that way? Well, let's just go back a bit. Why is mm -hmm. it called post-war? So we had this um, agreement in 1990, the Taif Agreement, and that actually ended the fighting. So I can understand why it's a landmark date. Um, but it also basically reaffirmed the status quo that led to the civil war in the first place, didn't it? Can, can you explain what that agreement actually was? Well, there's something very peculiar about that agreement, because for the most part, the people who were doing the fighting weren't the ones that were the ones negotiating it. It was very much like an international agreement, uh, largely made possible in practice because of the Syrian regime's uh, occupation, or as they would call it, stewardship of Lebanon. Um, 
And it didn't really address any of the underlying issues that led to the civil war in the first place. Uh, one kind of factoid that I like to mention sometimes, because I feel very few people know this, is that the people who signed it, or at least officially, who had to go to the city of Ta'if in Saudi Arabia to sort of put this agreement into place, were the 62 of the, I believe, 71 um, surviving members of what was essentially the last pre-war parliament from 1972. So we're recording this in 2022, and we're still sort of living in the aftermath of an agreement that was written 50 years ago, and which was even by the time that it was signed, the people who were signing it had no real democratic um, legitimacy, if you want to put it that way. But obviously, that didn't really matter. It didn't really matter to the to the powers that be. You know, it was very much, and we can get into it a bit more. It was very much a matter of kind of settling scores between Israel and Syria. You know, Israel, as I said, got southern Lebanon and got to keep southern Lebanon after the year 2000. And Syria basically got the rest of, of Lebanon. There's a lot of international politics happening. This was at the same time as uh, what we now call the first Gulf War, obviously after Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait and the Americans wanted to have the Syrians on their side. So there's a lot of things that were happening, if you want, in the background and sometimes even in the foreground they had very little, if anything, to do with what is the like with asking the question of what is the best, what is the best thing that is needed right now for Lebanon and for the people of Lebanon. That was very much just an afterthought. So it was an international um, set of actors, and also uh, the Lebanese were the people who had been involved in the initial civil war in the first place. Um, so basically, the structures that led to it were left unchanged. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, what, one consistent thing that I, I will also try and always talk about is that there were sort of certain things that they all had agreed uh, by 1990. And you especially saw this in the 1990s, which is that we're now going, we quote unquote, the Lebanese are now going to scapegoat the Palestinians because they were the only ones who kind of properly lost the war. Although you have some sectarian Christians that would also say that they also lost the war. But that's kind of maybe getting too much into details. But this is this is sort of part of it, is that at the end of the day, those in power, those who had made their power in the 70s and especially in the 80s, were the ones that uh, created the status quo that we are still living with today. We're talking about figures to this day, the president, the speaker of parliament, various politicians and warlords and so on that were the leading actors of what we're now calling the civil war and that became essentially the leaders of the, polit the politicians and oligarchs and ex-warlords or, or current warlords in what we're calling the post-war. And of course, that has huge implications for accountability, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they've escaped accountability for many crimes which happened throughout the conflict. Um, what are the implications for a country if what led to a violent and protracted war are left unaddressed in this way? Yeah, we're referring to, we're talking about like the amnesty law that was passed in 91, I believe. And that amnesty law essentially forgave most crimes committed before the date when it was passed. And that includes basically the vast majority of all crimes committed. So we're talking about, you know, mass murder. Uh, kidnapping, enforced disappearances, torture, rape, uh, forced displacement, uh, destruction of property, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of those things were completely um, forgiven, essentially. Like there were, you had a situation in the 90s where you still had people in Lebanon uh, who had loved ones disappeared, who had loved one murdered, tortured, etc., who maybe themselves survived torture or 
forced displacement and who had no legal path forward because, well, the crimes that were committed were not forgiven. And so why, why should it then surprise us that 30 years down the line, we're dealing with the same men, and obviously they are all men, that there is no real chance in... Like, some people would still hope that there might be, and I'm not going to you know, crush their dreams, but I think it's very unlikely that we will have accountability for the port explosion in 2020, for the assassination of Lukman Slim last year, for all of the assassinations that have been happening and occurring since the year 2005. You know, I don't think it should really surprise us because, as I said, all of those power dynamics which created the violence that we saw in the 70s and 80s were simply sort of codified in the 90s. They continued fighting, if you want, but through other means, which were obviously better than the means that they were employing in the 80s, but they weren't exactly something that you would consider normal in a so-called peaceful scenario. Right, right. Of course, any cessation of violence is to be welcomed. That's the first step towards mm -hmm. lasting peace and any healing of social trauma. But it's it's not the be all and end all. It's the first step. And there are many further necessary steps to do with accountability, transitional justice and remembrance. What do you think the further steps should have been after the Ta'if agreement? Well, some kind, well, obviously, I won't have the perfect answer, but definitely there are certain steps that you would think would be pretty straightforward. One, the people who were forcibly displaced, uh, there should have been a way for them to return to their homes. Uh, that's why after the, the quote-unquote the end of the war, we had certain areas of Beirut and Lebanon that were more quote-unquote ethnically homogeneous than they were prior to the, the war. And that, that's, you know, that was on, by design. You had those conflicts at some point uh, took a sectarian dimension. So, you know, if you were a Muslim in Eastern Beirut or a Christian in Western Beirut, you may have left and you may have wanted to go back to your home after the conflict ended, but there was no possibility of doing so for the most part. And so all of those things could have easily been addressed had they kind of thought about it, but that was just never a priority. Okay. Another obvious thing would be the if you have a family member who was forcibly disappeared, well, you should know, you, you should have a right uh, to know what happened to that loved one. To this day, we still have some, something called the committees of the families of the, for the, of the disappeared. Um, and this isn't, unfortunately, not to be mistaken with the more recent committee of those, the families and the relatives of those who died in the Port of, um, Port of Beirut explosion. And again, you see those echoes and those parallels happening time and time again. One thing that is very iconic, I think, for those who know anything about Beirut after the war, quote unquote, is the reconstruction of Beirut, right? You know, the, the high rises and the what we call Solidaire in Lebanon, the kind of the privatization that happened and all of that, so supposedly ushering in a new era for Lebanon under this promise of, you know, foreign investment and everything. But what's usually sort of uh, ignored is that in that same city center, you had up until relatively recently, they dismantled it some years ago, the tent uh, that was set up by, a number of tents that was set up by families of those who were forcibly disappeared. And those people are the same people that were told by the government in the 90s and early 2000s that they should just consider their loved ones dead and move on, sometimes quite literally. And so the opposite has happened to accountability yeah. and memorialization. They've been told to move on. They've um, Any kind of of accountability has been explicitly rejected. Yeah, there, there are some cases, and I've, I've interviewed like some relatives that they were basically being blamed for not moving on. Like, you know, we have moved on, us as a society have moved on, we don't want to 
go back. You, you know, we don't want to, um, uh, how do you say this? Un, we don't want to dig, uh, dig up the, the, the ghosts of the past and so on and so forth. So let's just all move on. I read that this was ugly and this, was, this should never be repeated. But, you know, your husband, your cousin, your son, your uncle, your whatnot, uh, just stop talking about them. And that's that's quite literally what happened. And to this day, there are obviously relatives that are still alive that have no real idea of what happened to their loved one in some cases, the 70s, if not the 80s. And we know from many different conflict zones that that trauma is really lasting and it not only lasts in your own life, but it can become intergenerational trauma, that the stories are passed down the families and and new generations grow up with this sense of injustice. It's like an inheritance. And so that makes a lasting, durable, peaceful society harder and harder to attain, really. I mean, what do you think... What do you think post-war could look like? What would it what would it mean to be post-war um, in a country that's experienced a civil conflict like Lebanon? What would the measurements or the markers be? Um, well, a number of things, Gillian. Obviously, it's it's important to kind of re-emphasize that probably in any context, you won't find a perfect solution. So there's always going to be some compromise to be made. I think that that should be expected just to be realistic about things. But there are certain things that you would not want to see. And again, one way forward would have been that if there's some kind of committee, you know, a truth and reconciliation committee, let's say, uh, that assesses all of the wrongs or most of the wrongs that could possibly be assessed and tries and um, do and tries and do something about it again if you've lost your house you should have some kind of compensation and or you should be allowed to go back you know if you've lost a loved one well you should have a right to find out what happened and those that committed those crimes there should be some form of accountability because obviously this the other side of the amnesty law is that all of those warlords and their henchmen and the people that would in the post-war quote-unquote uh, become the middlemen of their of the the regime as we as we know of it as we know it today. Um, their crimes were simply forgiven. They could have murdered dozens of people and you know just picked up uh, a, you know just created a new life for themselves. Whereas their victims just did not have that luxury. Mm-hmm. And given that I do cinema or I, I study cinema, a good example of that is a film called Sleepless Nights. And which came out about, I think, a decade or so ago, decade and something ago, in which you have on the one side a woman who has has had her son forcibly disappeared in, I believe, the 70s or no, early 80s, uh, confronting a man, a former militiaman, a former warlord, who was part of that political party that forcibly disappeared him. And they know this, like, and they have no problem sort of admitting this, but no one wanted to take responsibility for it. And so you have a crime that because of the amnesty law, among other things, and just general, uh, uh, I would say, like lack of accountability in Lebanon, uh, impunity is the word I was looking for, um, you would know that this happened. You would know that you, we have literal places in Beirut where we know this is a mass grave. Like we know this is a mass grave at that specific location and a hotel was built over it or a restaurant was built over it or it was, you know, cemented and they they make it they made a parking lot out of it like we have those locations we know where they are and we're supposed to essentially pretend that they're not there that's sort of the that's where the hauntings come in if you see what i mean yes and that's 
a very peculiar situation. It's not like nobody knows. It's not ignorance. I think impunity is a better word for it mm -hmm. because people know what happened when and who was involved. It's just there's no way of holding anybody, anybody to account, but also to receive any justice in that situation. There's nothing that can really happen to, to balance that, 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 that crime. Yeah, and because of that, I can give you a concrete example. I was interviewing a woman and her husband um, about seven, eight years ago now, and their two sons were forcibly disappeared in 1982, if I remember correctly. And they don't know by whom. They thought maybe it was the Amal movement, for example, one of the main political parties. And so they found a way to literally ask Nabi Hiburi himself, the leader of that party and the Speaker of Parliament, who's been Speaker of Parliament since 1992, I should say. And... He just told them, well, I don't know where they are. You should ask that other party, which is what they did. They went and they asked Hezbollah and Hezbollah said, we don't know where they are. And you have this, and this is just an example. You, you have on the other side, you have this very similar examples. But what that ended up creating, all of this impunity as we're calling it like 30 years on, what that ended up doing is, as I've kind of said in, in one of my own essays, one of my book chapters, is that the agents of war became the de facto agents of peace. Meaning, and we see this all the time, you have Hassan Nasrallah or Samir Shaja and all, all, those, uh, all of those are names of former and or current warlords in Lebanon, and obviously politicians as well, uh, essentially say things like, if we don't calm things down, we risk a civil war. And we hear this all the time. Every few months you have a politician who goes on television and who says, if we don't de-escalate, if we don't calm things down, we risk a civil war. But of course, the trick here is that the only people who are able to enact a civil war are them. They are the ones with the guns. They are the ones with the militias. They are the ones with the training. But they would say this, you know, they would use this threat essentially against protesters, against independents, against peaceful activists, and so on and so forth. Because, well, what else are you going to do about it? You know, you can easily, and because enough people are terrified of the a return of a civil war, we know we're not, like, people know that a civil war is always possible. Then at some point, it, it's enough to pacify many people. It's enough to scare people into essentially submission, which is what we continue seeing to this day. I mean, it's a textbook protection racket, you know. Yeah. You, you need to pay somebody to prevent them destroying your business or whatever it is yeah that's been i mean that's why we we hear comparisons to the mafia obviously in lebanon it is um unfortunately these comparisons tend to be overdone but in this case it is what it is you know i i do think it fits that definition pretty well I want us to talk a little bit about what that collective amnesia does to a society. You've talked a lot about what it means on an individual level. And of course, anybody who has followed the stories of the disappeared knows how harrowing it is. I mean, how people have died not knowing what happened to their loved ones. People have lived three decades mm -hmm. now without mm -hmm. knowing. But as a society, what happens when you have that collective amnesia, when there's this collective decision to ignore the past? Well, I would, so I would kind of just... Um, push back just slightly against the, the notion of a collective amnesia. I call this kind of the amnesia thesis just because it is something that has been discussed a lot in the 90s, early 2000s. And to this day, we still see this question, like, is there a collective amnesia in Lebanon? And to some extent, there is. I'm not going to deny that completely. But I think we should just emphasize the fact that even if there weren't, like even if every single individual in Lebanon remembered, quote unquote, everything that happened in the correct order of things and just, you know, wasn't kind of prone to brainwash or to kind of misinformation and all of that, even if that were the case, 
it still wouldn't change the fact that legally speaking, those crimes were forgiven. That legally speaking, those mass graves are not mass graves anymore, at least not criminal, you know, something worth of a criminal something worth a criminal investigation. So that being said, what it does is it creates a situation where we we are unable to talk about trauma. Now, obviously, this is somewhat changing with the younger generations, like those that came, the post-war generation, you might call them, again in quotation, millennials and Gen Zers, for, for lack of a better term here. We do have a better sense of how to talk about trauma and that sort of thing. But structurally, how do you do this? You have millions of people effectively who are traumatized in one way or another. Access to healthcare, let alone mental healthcare, isn't exactly a thing, especially with the current crisis. And so the, I, I would basically, my answer here is that I would bring it back to what is structural. Structurally, we are dealing with the people who committed those crimes and who are literally the current president and the current speaker of parliament and various members of parliament and various opposition parties, quote-unquote, who may one day themselves become president. You know, we're dealing with, as I said, Michel Aoun, the current president, who was a warlord. Uh, someone who might follow up after him is Samir Jaja, who was a former warlord. You know, all of those uh, men and the fact that they are all men is part of the story. This is a highly, highly gendered uh, problem. Um they are the ones that hold the key to your safety. They are the ones that you, you sort of know this, if not consciously, at least subconsciously. I think everyone grows up knowing this. You grow up sort of knowing how to kind of not cross a line, how who not to insult, you know, who to, um, uh, how do you say this, who to recognize as your superior. Those are all things that are embedded in the political culture of what we're now calling post-war Lebanon. But it sounds as if you're saying it isn't so much a collective amnesia as it is an enforced amnesia, that these yeah. elites that still wield the power, political and military power, that they are enforcing silence and submission from the public. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, as I said, I'm not going to completely deny that there is some form of amnesia. It does exist, but it's not it's not collective in the sense of like everyone. And it's not collective in the sense of total either. There are just... The way we remember, there is this great term like inherited sectarian historiographies. And I know it's kind of a fancy academic term, but what essentially means is the way we remember the past in Lebanon, and this is a it's a broad generalization, but it's generally true, is usually through some kind of inherited story. So if if you grew up where I did, which was like in Mount Lebanon in a very Christian, like homogeneous Christian, uh, homogeneously Christian, I would say, uh, area, well, like the first Muslim I ever met, I was like 15 years old or something. Um, then you, you sort of grew up, I grew up knowing, for example, thinking that the word resistance meant the Lebanese forces. It's only later that I that I found out that, well, actually, most people, when they think of resistance, they're thinking of the resistance in Mukawame. They're thinking of Hezbollah because they're thinking of the resistance against Israel. Whereas what, what, where I grew up, which is where the Syrian regime was bombing, I grew up with the notion of a resistance to the Syrian regime. And this kind of later on, later on becomes uh, colored in different ways. Like if you're left-wing or right-wing or conservative or liberal or lefty or whatever. But ultimately, it's just stories that were passed down for the most part, either from your parents, you know, or grandparents, maybe in your school, maybe in your neighborhood. Certainly in my case, it was a combination of all of those things that were very, very different than what folks that I later met when I started my undergrad studies in Beirut at the American University of Beirut in 2010, 
later found out had very, very different experiences of that exact same period that we're talking about. Again, when we speak of the post-war, we usually are thinking of a, day, a period of day, like a period that started in the 90s. But if you were to name an obvious example, if you were a Lebanese in southern Lebanon, well, that you didn't have a post-war up until the year before the year 2000, if you see what I mean. And just six years later, you had a war yet again. So those questions tend to be my problem with those categories. Let me put it this way. My problem with those categories is they tend to hide more that they tend to raise more questions than they answer. I guess I could put it this way. When you are thinking about how you remember the past, and this, I think, ties into um, your conception of this post-war period, essentially, your idea of a post-war period is something that exists in limbo because the conditions still exist as if they were pre-war. But at the same time, people went through an actual civil war. And so they experienced things that went through that war and they are now on the other side post-war. So half half of the structures of the society are pre-war and half of the experiences of the society are post-war. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very good way of putting it. And again, this at the official level, the only um, consistent policy that I could think of other than patriarchal structures being basically the same and an anti-Palestinianism that then turned into an anti-Syrianism when it comes to refugees that was essentially embedded in the structure of, of Lebanese politics that continues to this day. The only other consistent thing is that we need to look forward and not look back. The irony is that the look forward, the, the looking forward bit isn't really forward looking. It's not there isn't much plans as to what's going to happen in five years. That's sort of the irony is that by erasing the past, we've sort of also erased the future. In Lebanon today, it is extremely difficult to think of anything that might happen next year, or, you know, let alone next month for that matter. We very much like, I'm, I'm no longer in Lebanon, unfortunately, but all of the conversations that I've continued to have on a daily basis with friends and family is, well, today we're okay or we're okay enough and that's it. Um, by the end of the week, we have no idea. By next month, we have no idea thinking of Lebanon in 2030 almost feels like an insult. Like we don't even know if there will be a Lebanon in 2030. It would be a common thing that I hear when I thought when I when I ask those questions. Well can I just actually go back to that idea of looking back? And mm -hmm. that's I mean it's astonishing to me that you said that the first time you really heard alternative stories about the civil war was when you reached university. Did I understand that right? Yeah, yeah. And I actually think this is pretty common. In Beirut, you, you have more chances of mixing with other folks. And in other parts of Lebanon, you do. But in many areas, including the area where I grew up in, for the most part, you would more or less be told a single story. And of course, there aren't any official narratives or memorials. There, no. um, the history textbooks in schools all finish in 1975. Um, and so, as you've described, all the narratives, by definition, must circulate by word of mouth alone. And that also means within a sect of family, a, another trusted community. Um, and I mean, I've heard of lots of different um, personal and civic responses to that using various art forms and civic spaces like mm -hmm. those, those walks you can do down the green line. And yeah. there's been some street theater that I heard about. And, and, so, and so many individuals have tried to overcome this, this what Faisal's calling collective amnesia, uh, but there hasn't been anything coordinated, nothing countrywide to deal with the traumatic memories. And now, no. 
we talked about you, you've talked very clearly about about what that happens to what, what what sorry how that affects how people think about the country but one thing it another thing is that sectarianism can actually become more entrenched than during the violence um because the stories of injustice are not balanced by learning what others went through or how an understanding of how such a widespread violence can impact everybody in society um and so a few decades after Taif, getting to be 50 years after the beginning of the Civil War, do you think Lebanon might produce an official version of the history of the conflict? Is that even possible now, given the frailty of memory and the lack of historical documents, as well as the unwillingness of those in charge to do so? No, I don't think, at, at the very least, not anytime soon, like not in the near future. Um, and the reason for that is pretty simple. The people that would have to enact those, you know, let's say, uh, establish a truth and reconciliation committee would have to implicate themselves. And for the for that same reason, we will probably, I mean, I don't know, I could be wrong, but probably never find out, quote unquote, the truth about what happened uh, at the port of Beirut explosion, because as far as we can, uh, as far as we know, everything, everything that has come out since, a lot of them, if not all of them, at least knew about the presence of the ammonium nitrate, for example. So when it comes, we're talking about 2020, and we're probably not going to find out, uh, let alone what's been happening in the 70s, what happened in the 70s and 80s, and and after. Again, the post-war includes the 2005 post-2005 assassinations from the prime minister Rafik Hariri to, you know, journalists like Samir Osir or Gibran Twaini. Uh, last year, as I mentioned, Lokman Slim and a number of other politicians. You know. You, you can personally uh, reach your conclusions, like as as I have done, uh, but that doesn't do much to their actual victims, let or, or and or their families. And because of that, I really think I I personally don't see any room for change anytime soon. I wish I did, and I'm talking about like at the official level. Uh, there are other uh, there's always potential for change elsewhere, and maybe we can talk about this uh, more in a bit. But and yeah, the, to just to repeat myself again, like the, the reason for that is very simple. They will not establish it through the reconciliation committees if it can mean that they are going to be personally implicated. And if they establish one without with that caveat, uh, well, we're kind of ignoring the vast majority of crimes that were committed because most of them were committed by those same actors. But you know, it's not only the the impact of a lack of a coherent narrative shared among the country isn't something that only affects those communities. It also affects outsiders, Lydia. I mean, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time in Beirut. You've seen these these images like the, you know, the hotel, the Holiday Inn in Beirut. You can see that it's got bullet holes to it and so on. I wonder, Lydia, if, if you know, when we go into a country like that and we're trying to understand what is happening, I think probably that lack of a collective narrative actually impacts that that aspect of it as well, don't you think? Oh, for sure. It is. It's surreal, isn't it? Seeing the Holiday Inn um, that was built in 1974, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it was a witness at the site of the infamous Battle of the Hotels, uh, which raged for months and, and did the... the the bullet holes, the shell holes are still there. And it, it's all very obviously um, been through conflict and yet there's no information at all. It's, it's barricaded off. There are security guards, but there's no information. And if you ask, you can make people uncomfortable. Um, 
And it's it's like a silent memorial. It's standing there in the middle of Beirut. It doesn't go away. It's completely obvious that there was a war there. And yet nobody's really talking about it. And so, I mean, yeah, I grew up in a time where the civil war was going on, that Lebanon was known for being basically like the Holiday Inn still looks. Mm -hmm. And so to an outsider, you turn up and you're like, oh, yeah, this is Beirut, <laughs> which is very odd, you know, so in, in, in many visual ways. Uh, there hasn't really, you haven't really achieved post-war either. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, uh, what I can think of an amazing scene in a film called Erased, A Son of the Disappeared by Hassan Halwani, where he is, um, so he's speaking to this photojournalist and they're talking about, and you can see on the screen, this uh, scene, which was actually blurred out. So you don't actually see fully what's happening. That's part of the, the film. But the scene is of a kidnapping. Uh, that happened, I believe, in one of the Palestinian camps by the Amal movement at the time. So this would have been mid to late 80s, if I got my dates right. And at some point, if, so Hassan asked that photojournalist, like, do you know what's happening here? And he tells them yes. And so what is it? They describe, the, the photojournalist describes it and so on and so forth. And then at some point, the photojournalist tells them, um, and here this is just paraphrasing, but like, you can't just ask me this, these questions. This requires the collective. And he repeated this like two or three times, if I can remember correctly. And I think this is a very good summary that a lot of people know what happened individually, but it is very difficult to sort of take the next step because taking the next step essentially requires making yourself vulnerable. And that's very difficult to do if you don't also know that if you do so, you will be safe, that there won't be a, a well, a cost, and it's sometimes a very serious cost to you asking questions that quote unquote should not be asked anymore. I do think we need to talk about sectarianism. There's a mm -hmm. discussion to be had about, you know, whether the civil war started that way. But I think it's fair to say that over the period of time, the war did become a sectarian conflict. Yes. And I think most people would assume that in the 30 or so years since life, that sectarian differences wouldn't be as severe as they were at the height of the conflict. And obviously, in terms of violence, they are not. But the divisions between di different religious groups have become more pronounced since then. Yeah, and that's by design. Uh, as I mentioned, um, I might get this specific number right, but something along the lines of uh, Muslims in East Beirut went from 40% to something like 5 or 10% by the late 80s, you know, and there was never any, and this is just one example, there was never any attempt to redress that wrong. Uh, and, you know, from the perspective of the warlords that kind of came up on top after the the signing of the tariff agreement why should there be now at least they have even more homogeneous uh, enclaves if you want that they can rule over which is exactly what we see today so yeah th those divisions are there by design as i said there lebanon being such a tiny country and yet um it took like a decade and a half and i was in a pretty i would say like very liberal open-minded middle-class family you know just it's unless you have a reason or you know where to go or whatnot, you could easily live your life, probably not your entire life, but at least most of your life in relatively isolated silos in Lebanon, despite its tiny size. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean, and this is sort of the paradox that confuses a lot of people, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the average Lebanese thinks of themselves as primarily as first a sect and then in Lebanese. In fact, 
most of the polls that I've seen to that effect seems to suggest that the Lebanese and the Palestinians tend to be more secular overall when it comes to this. That's sort of not the point. The point is that even if one is secular, or even if one is an atheist for that matter, politically it just doesn't matter. Politically, you are the and you are born into a sect, and that is the sect that you culturally belong to, and therefore this is the political identity that you have to maintain throughout your life, kind of like anecdotally. A lot of friends that in Lebanon would be considered Christians or Muslims or Druze are like atheists who have no, you know, God-related beliefs, but it doesn't matter in Lebanon. I mean, you're not supposed to do much blasphemy, but other than that, you can be an atheist uh, as long as you play your cultural role as a Christian or as a Muslim as it was, because if you don't, then it becomes a problem of demography. Then it becomes like, well, if the, if Christians are losing their faith, this isn't the problem, and I'm, I'm making up a, a scenario. It's not that it's actually happening. But if X group, let's say, was losing their faith in God, that wouldn't be the main problem. The main problem is that, well, if at some point they, they switch uh, call, from calling themselves X group to calling themselves another group or to opting actually to take the box that says non-religious or atheist, well, that kind of puts the entire system on the risk, and so you can't really have that, which is why in today in Lebanon, there are no civil marriages. You cannot have a civil marriage on Lebanese ground. But if you wanted to, you can travel to Cyprus, or which is a common destination, or elsewhere in the world, have it there, and you can do so between the various sects, you know, one Muslim and one Christian, or one Sunni and one Shia, or one what have you, and it will be recognized in Lebanon. That's fine. But, and here's the kick, your child, you will have to decide which sect that child is. Usually it's the one of the father. Your wife, let's say, will have to convert to the religion of the husband, or sometimes vice versa, but usually not. You know, this is sort of the case. And in theory, you can live as a secular Lebanese, even as an atheist, you can mix with other religious groups and so on and so forth. But politically, whether you do so or not doesn't matter because when, when it when it comes down to it, when you go to the voting booth, this is how you have to vote. These are the only options in front of you. Whether you want it, whether you want this president, whether you like a president or not doesn't matter. The only criteria is that the president has to be a Maronite Christian. Same for the prime minister. He has to be, it's always a he, has to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of parliament has to be a Shia Muslim, you know, and so on and so forth. And this is how it is. So if this is how it is, it doesn't matter as much if like you personally feel uh, that you identify mostly as a Christian or as a Lebanese or mostly as a Shia or as a Lebanese. What matters is that even if you did identify mostly as a Lebanese, politically, you will have to opt for the former. In a way, you're asking people to play as a member of that sect regardless exactly. of their own feelings yeah exactly and this is something lydia that you've done extensive field work in lebanon this is something that you've recognized while you were on the ground absolutely and i'm also reminded about another place i've done extensive field work in and that's northern ireland it's mm-hmm. exactly as you just described joey it doesn't matter if you believe in god or not you have a political identity which is protestant or catholic and it's 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 political it's social um and for some people it's religious and of course the labels in, them, in themselves are religious but it's nothing to do with the religious faith and in fact there are lots of jokes around that you know people at a checkpoint are you a catholic or a protestant and you say actually i atheist and they say are you a catholic atheist or a protestant atheist (laughs) you know that's it's exactly the same as in lebanon which is the which god don't you believe in (laughs) exactly (laughs) um 
Um, but you also, I mean, that is a, a, a parallel that is often made because the, the the Northern Irish situation is one where it is politically constitu- constituted like that. So it is di- the, the structures are created in order to maintain that status quo. And this is something, Joey, that you mentioned briefly, but I think we should go back to that you believe that the the preservation in aspect of the problems of the 70s is actually by design. You don't believe they ever intended to fix the post-war period properly, do you? Well, no. And the reason I say this is because I've read what they had to say. Uh, it's, it's again, it, it was pretty straightforward. When, when you had all of those, let's say, humanitarian-related concerns, when they were mentioned, they were always mentioned in very vague language. So the only because the tariff agreement was signed in a specific context under uh, Syrian uh, stewardship, <laughs> you know, putting this in quotation, obviously under the the hegemony of the Hafez Assad regime, the priorities were to maintain that status quo. In fact, there is a reason why it happened. The what the the war quote unquote ended in the late eighties and not earlier. There were attempts for some kind of settlements, and here I'm putting settlement. I'm saying settlement, not to say that those would be good settlement. I'm sure there would be lots of problems with those as well. But if a settlement favored Israel, the Syrians weren't happy about it. And if a settlement favored Syria, the Israelis were not happy about it. And so their local allies, if not them themselves, um, would essentially thwart those attempts. And you can even argue that even by the the 70s, like in 76 or maybe by 77, there was a possibility for what was then the two-year war, as it was called, or would be then be called as basically the first episode of what was to come could have maybe could have been the only episode. All of this other stuff that we associate as the horrors of Lebanon in the 80s maybe did not need to happen. But the, the incentives weren't there. The, the, the priorities of the powers that be weren't there. And by powers that be, I don't just mean regional powers here. I also mean local elites, local warlords. They, have, they had a vested interest to continue what was happening, which is why at the end of the day it lasted for 15 years. And this is something that I try to emphasize as much as I can, that usually when we speak of the civil war, uh, and we speak of that period as being the civil war, especially when we use that that way in the singular, that's sort of why I kind of often use the plural. I, say, I, call, it like, I call them the Lebanese wars, to emphasize that it was multiple things that in the end was sort of, you know, you might say this was a period of history, but many things happened in that period of history. And the reason for that is to emphasize that those were political decisions made. Those were decisions made by warlords and or by oligarchs and or by local elites and or by the regional powers, usually Israel and or Syria. But the Gulf had some some impact on it at some point. The Americans did at some point as well to kind of drive that, drive that point home. The reason why uh, when the current president at the, at the time, who was called General Michel Ron, now he's the president, when he launched his so-called war of liberation, as he called it, against the Syrian troops in the country, um, and because this is Lebanese politics, three decades on, they're actually allies, but at the time they were not. Um, the reason why he lost is that the foreign government, that were, among other things, A, he had fewer men than the Syrians, that he had 8,000 Syrians, had like tens of thousands, but is that he was supposed supposed to be backed by the uh, Saddam regime in, in Iraq as the rival Ba'athist party against the Syrian Ba'athist uh, regime. And that didn't happen because Saddam was too busy invading Kuwait. And so when that happened, uh, the Syrians essentially were given, were handed out Lebanon in return for joining the, the coalition 
uh, against Saddam Hussein in Iraq uh, to to liberate uh, sorry in, in Kuwait to liberate Kuwait from from Saddam. So you had those external factors, and this is just one example. There are more than that. You had one those external factors that ended up mattering significantly more so than any kind of quote unquote local concerns, and that's actually the language that was used. Those are local concerns, concerns that could be dealt with maybe in the future, but the priority right now was right now, as in in 1990, was simply not that. And it's had lasting impacts. It's not just entrenched the the situation of the 70s, but it's actually increased sectarianism. Isn't that right? I mean, yeah. my own research project in uh, Lebanon, we, we were probing different attitudes to violence. And of course, we disaggregated the data in all sorts of ways, but one was sect. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard a really apologetic tone in people's voices when they say things to me like, oh, I wish I could answer differently, but for the sake of my children, I wouldn't ever marry outside my sect. Or, yeah. you know, I know this is wrong, but for my family and my community, I would never sell land to someone outside my sect. And I am simplifying, but, you know, I heard this type of sentiment again and again. And by many measurements from intermarriage and what you just mentioned, the population distributions in cities in Lebanon, sectarianism is actually growing. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And this is why what I mentioned by design is that, for example, the whole like not selling land to, to people from other sects. That's because I mean, I'm not going to justify it. It's obviously a bad thing to do. But that if you follow a sectarian logic, well, that's because you you worry or you're afraid that you might become the minority in an, you know in, in a in a region where the other sect is going to be the majority. So it becomes an entire you know game of who how much can we or let, let me put it this way, it's like trench warfare. Like that's sort of the mentality. You you have your area, you're going to build some kind of border, usually an imaginary border. Or you will have checkpoints. You you can build borders in different ways. It's called a bordering process. Actually, in the literature, you know the flags is a common thing. You will have an area of Beirut, for example, where quite literally one neighborhood would have Amal flags, and that's just on the other side you would have SNP flags or Hezbollah flags or FPM flags or LF flags. And apologies apologies for people who don't know what that is. Just various political parties in Lebanon, all of whom were militias, I should say, during the war or still are militias today. Um, th this is one way of bordering, you know, this is the bordering process. You create those borders and you sort of say, not necessarily outright, like if I walk into an area that is quote unquote, not my sect, you know, not where my sect is dominant, I wouldn't necessarily be treated differently. It's not, you know, it's usually in the subtext. It's usually like, well, if you want to move here, maybe that's an issue. If you want to marry from someone someone who's from here, maybe that becomes an issue. Maybe not. In some cases, it's not. But it, there's kind of a, and it makes it more likely for it to become an issue because it's not just about your own personal attitude. That's kind of key here. It's not whether, it's not just about whether you are personally bigoted against people from other sects or from other parts of Lebanon, because geography is also very important, obviously. It's not just that, and it's not just class. It's not, you know, all of those things are factors. It's also the fact that you might have concrete political ramifications if you do so. You may not, but you might. And so this, this factors in how we end up thinking about it, even though when we make those decisions or when we have those attitudes, or, or Lydia, when you, you saw those responses, 
maybe the person giving that response ha hasn't gone through all of the entire process of justifying it or rationalizing it, uh, you know, and so on and so forth, but it becomes part of the atmosphere. It becomes part of how we deal with one another. Like if there is an attack on a certain or a criticism from one member of some sect against a member of another sect, or let's say a figure who is part of another sect or whatnot, it may just be that. It may just be the criticism of this person criticizing that other person. But because of how things are in Lebanon, it might be much easier for me, for example, to criticize warlords that are Christian than it is for me to criticize warlords that are Sunni or Shias or Druze, even though it's the exact same criticism, the exact same arguments I'm using, the exact same problems I have with all of those men. It can be interpreted differently. You brought up Syria, but you could say in a way, if we're talking about the, the current Syrian conflict, that mm -hmm. there is a warning in all of this for Syria. I mean, the Syrian conflict is not really at an end. It's still yeah. ongoing in many parts of the country. But at some point, there is going to be some sort of an agreement. And presumably, those people who will be negotiating it will be looking right next door at the agreement in Taif. Yeah, I, I can imagine that being the case, and that's one of the things that scares me. And what, what is the part that scares you about it? Well, that essentially because Syria was the one, like the Assad regime at the time was the one that made thought if possible, it's sort of, you, you, one might expect that something similar would happen in Syria, assuming that the Assad regime would be involved, which I'm assuming it would be. Um, and I think most people don't know this, but there was a period of time, not that long ago, it feels like ancient history because everything before COVID is ancient history, but like up until 2018, to even like beginning of 2019, there was a lot of talk in Lebanon about preparing Lebanon for the post-war in Syria. There was talks like uh, of turning uh, Tripoli in the north, northern Lebanon, into a port for you know all of those building materials that will come in to rebuild Syria, and so there was a lucrative opportunity for a lot of people who are in Lebanon. They were the people, the elites in Lebanon, at least a lot of them, were adopting the same logic that they themselves applied in Lebanon 20 years, 30 years prior, in uh, in what they assume um, would be the Syrian context. So the Lebanese elites saw in Syria an opportunity in the same way that they saw in Lebanon an opportunity. And the Syrian elites had seen in Lebanon an opportunity, as, as we, we've talked about, because, again, the, the Taif agreement would simply not have been practical without the imposition of, like, the forceful imposition by the Assad regime, of the Assad regime, if you're on the rest of the country, with the exception of southern Lebanon, as I said. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so the fact that they were themselves, they, this is a, they, they saw, they had the blueprint played out in Lebanon. And there's a lot of reasons why it won't be exactly the same in Syria. For one, it is significantly worse in Syria than it ever was in Lebanon. It happened much, the destruction happened much faster on a different scale. But some of that underlying logic, if you want, I do think is very likely to be replicated. Interestingly, you already hear this desire for a similar sort of amnesia from Syrians. You mm -hmm. already hear people say that, look, the country can't forever remain in a state of paralysis. It does need to be rebuilt at some point, regardless of who is in charge. And so already you feel the rumblings of the same collective amnesia, the same attempt to go back to the period before and not deal with what has happened over the past 10 years. Yeah, and... I understand it. You know, it's 
a decade of trauma and horror, uh, a lot of people just wanted to be to just go back to the good old days prior that, and everything starts looking like the good old days compared to the past decade. In Lebanon, it's very common to romanticize the pre-75, you know, period, the the common cliche of like the Switzerland of the Middle East and Beirut being the Paris of the Middle East and all of that stuff, sort of forgetting that we had a literal civil war in 1958, for example, and various issues in the 60s as well, because, you know, by comparison to the 70s and 80s, well, that doesn't look too bad. Mm. And so I get it. On an emotional level, I completely get it. And I'm not going to judge anyone for having that... Uh, that uh, response, if you know that attitude, the problem is, and uh, the problem that I mean, what I would tell those people that we're talking about here, and I have heard the same from friends and other, you know, their relatives, especially and stuff like that. What I would tell them is that we have a lot of other examples of that, of precisely that being made, being done. We have a lot of examples in which the the need to simply move on was done in a way that was simply not long term was simply done in a way to stop the immediate fighting, which is very important. Should, As Lydia said before, this is obviously step, the first step. There's no doubt about it. Regardless of like, a very bad ceasefire is so much better than a, than a perfect one that happened 10 years, 10 years later, right? Mm-hmm. And so I completely, I completely agree with that. I completely understand. The problem is the day after. The problem is what do you do after that? Mm. I mean, Lydia, the the situation in Lebanon is obviously has a sectarian tinge to it. That sectarianism is not going to pertain in Syria to the same degree. But what might happen is that the dividing lines might harden around politics, around what you did before, which side were you on in the early part of the revolution? Yes, absolutely. Um, although the sectarianism, um, as seen in so many other conflicts, has become more and more important. But yes, there isn't the same kind of aspect as in Lebanon, uh, partly because the minority, you know, there's there's a bigger majority and the minorities are smaller. Uh, but they are very, that those boundaries have hardened. Um, in terms of the political realities, there is going to have to be a lot of amnesia, certainly in the early days, in order to establish a ceasefire. And I think there is going to be a vast difference in how people perceive who the victims are. And that is going to be extremely difficult to navigate in terms of in terms of producing the narratives, Mm. Um, even more so or just as much as in Lebanon. And that's because. There's such secrecy, the kind of secrecy, Joey, you were talking about, we know where the mass graves are and yeah, somebody built something on top of them, but we know there's so much in Syria that we don't know and I don't know if we ever will. Mm. And that kind of lacunae is going to be incredibly hard for the people left behind. First Mm. of all, to feel like they're getting anywhere with understanding what happened and coming to terms with it and getting any kind of understanding and closure, but also for the historians trying to figure things out. And that means... Um, there's going to be terrible difficulties for the politicians of the future. Nobody knows really what happened and what needs to happen to to provide any any kind of any kind of I don't know durable peace. Yeah, I mean, and in a way, Syria might be worse in some ways because. In Lebanon, you have various communities and all of those communities have an interest in finding out what the other communities did and also hiding what they did. 
But mm -hmm. when you think about Syria, I mean, there's really only the core of a regime which wants to hide what they did. Mm -hmm. And then people who want to know what the regime did to them. I suppose there are various militias and versions of that, but it's not the same. The community, the community split is not the same as it is in Lebanon. And so the the push forward to try to have the reconciliation, to try to understand where the bodies developed, is not going to come in the same way as it came in Lebanon. No, and I think that's why, I mean, I think that's a very good example because when, if you do Lebanon-Syria comparisons, and the Lebanese do that quite a lot, I think, um, one thing that would be often brought up is is what you just said that in Lebanon we don't have a we don't really have a sectarian majority of any kind at the, at the very least if you divide Sunni uh, Sunnis and Shias up which tends to be the case you have roughly the same amount in here like because we don't have an actual census which is actually part of the problem in Lebanon yeah. but we we sort of have the same amount of Shias Sunnis Christians the minor the only minority really are the Druze they're like a, about ten percent. And so, but because you have as the counter example of that, a place like Syria, where you do have a majority and you have a minority ruling over the majority. Now, obviously, it's more complicated than that. But you you, you have that element that's sometimes used as like, uh, well, we don't want that in Lebanon. Therefore, we need to maintain the sectarian balances at all costs, even if those sectarian balances are not lit are not literally accurate. Because as I said, we don't actually know how many Sunnis and Shias and Christians there are in Lebanon, but politically you're supposed to continue acting if, essentially as if there is a parity in a numeric, like a numerical parity between all of those sects. In a way, there is so much pretense and so much imagining going on. I mean, it, these are imagined communities because we don't know the numbers. There hasn't been a census since the 30s. Mm -hmm. There's an imaginary way that people have to behave because they have to maintain that sectarian identity even when they don't believe in it. You're yeah, asking yeah. people to go through life and a society to move through the world in a way that requires a lot of imagining. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And because of that, and because there's no uh, guarantee, at least legal guarantee, that if you get out of that box, if you if you try and imagine an alternative, and you would you would have to accept essentially that you may incur quite significant costs to yourself, your family, your your sanity, maybe you know, if not other other kinds of costs. And because of that, just most people don't do it. Uh, you can form as many friendships as you want with people from other uh, sects. There's no problem for it. It's not frowned upon in any, I mean, in some areas it is, obviously, if you're more conservative or more extreme or whatever. But generally speaking, it's it's okay. No one really cares about these things. Having Muslims and Christians over for dinner, you know, no one really cares about these things. It's seen actually as a good performance of how, you know, everything is fine in Lebanon. You know, it's actually encourage in many ways you might say yeah. but politically this is the problem politically is that even you may have muslims and christians over for dinner but the president has to be christian <laughs> the mm. prime minister has to be sunni and the speaker of parliament has to be shia and if you threaten that status quo and, and i'm just naming the obvious one the, the general of the army has to be i think maronite you know etc and different different uh, other examples as well this is this is where the problem really lies. That's why when we're talking about steps forward in Lebanon, it's simply I simply do not, and this is just me, other people might have a different opinion, but I simply do not see any real long-term solution as long as there is sectarian politics institutionalized the way they are today.
Well, you've been very clear about that and you were very clear earlier about how hard it is to imagine the future and how it's almost offensive to ask where will Lebanon be in 2030 um, because it, there, there is just so much there are so many problems facing Lebanon, particularly at this time with the destruction of the economy over the past two years and the mm -hmm. dive in the standard of living for pretty much everyone in Lebanon. And so you can't imagine the future, but can you imagine any sort of path, any steps out of this very uneasy piece? Uh, so the, the short answer is sort of, um, the reason why I say that is that there is so much that hangs in the balance right now. A lot of those warlords that I've been mentioning are very old. The president is in his late 80s. The Speaker of Parliament is also in his late 80s. Those are two kind of giants, if you want, of post-war, quote-unquote, post-war Lebanese politics. Uh, some of the other warlords and oligarchs are younger, but none of them so far have died. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, 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 it, it might be a benign point, but it's actually pretty relevant that we have had the same faces, more or less the same faces for the past three decades. The exception being Rafiq al-Hariri was assassinated in 2005. And other people were assassinated before or died of natural causes before, but they were not as an, as big, if you want, in, in compared to the, the current ones, the ones that are still in power. So when that happens, which like statistically speaking, it's going to be in the next few years, you know, realistically speaking, I mean, something will have to give, something will have to be to be done. Uh, if you are in the, um, if you're thinking from a sectarian point of view, and here I don't mean like Shia versus Sunni versus Christians, I mean like politically as uh, the leader of the Amal movement, you should be invested, let's say, in thinking of who is going to be the person that follows you, the person that takes takes over after you have left, if you are Nabi Hibiri. But there isn't really any serious preparations being made. There are some talks here and there, but it's not the same. You have this man who has been in the head of a major political party for five decades now, and who has basically turned the the, the gendarmerie, as we call it, like the, guard, the, the guards of the parliament, uh, into his kind of private militia, essentially. When he dies, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to the members? What's going to happen to the middlemen that keep the party going? And this is just one example. Similar things are happening in other political parties, often due to age, but sometimes due to money or lack of popularity, as we're now seeing with the future movement, which is Hariri's party. It might be that his, I think it's his brother takes over, but maybe that doesn't work in the same way. Maybe he doesn't have the same charisma. Maybe he doesn't have the same... You know, he isn't able to play the sectarian game in the same way as his brother did, or I think it's his brother, um, uh, in the same way because his brother has been doing it for a decade or decade plus for now, you know. There are all of those other factors playing in. And if you have a giant of the Sunni vote, and here I'm using sectarian terms, uh, unable to compete or who, who, who won't, there won't be a Sunni quote-unquote candidate well, what's going to happen to the Sunni vote? Is it going to go to an independent? If the if Nabi Habari, when he passes away, what's going to happen? You know, you have all of those what ifs that you can do, and some of them you can you can have some kind of uh, you can sort of imagine that well, some of them may turn into into some kind of positive change, but that's sort of hoping essentially that the leaders at the top die of natural causes, you know, which we don't know when that's going to happen. In terms of what we can do in the meantime. I think it's just continue what we're currently doing. The problem is that a lot of people are exhausted. A lot of people are dealing with PTSD. A lot of people are are just 
dealing with surviving on a monthly basis because as you mentioned the economy has taken a downturn for the past couple of years now and there's no real um uh, there's no reason to really to believe that it's going to change anytime soon but for example i mentioned this in 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 my own podcast as well if you imagine that maybe the economy stabilizes itself and i'm putting i'm putting this in quotation as in at some point the lira is back to the dollar in uh with a new normal, let's say, lower than the, the previous uh, pre-2020 average, maybe that creates enough stability. And here again, I'm putting this in quotations, that it encourages people to take to the streets again. This is one possibility. I think it's actually a very likely one. So there's so many different scenarios of like, maybe a warlord dies, maybe another disaster hits Lebanon. They might, they might see another wildfire, which were the precursors to the 2019 uprising, which as of now is the biggest one we've ever seen in Lebanon. You have all of those different factors that it's just, if you just write them down, like literally write them down, it's impossible to conclude that this decade isn't going to see something significant, if not many things significant happening. And so for me, it's a matter of, uh, helping build as much as possible for what's coming or, or what might come later, and at the same time trying to sort of build the grounds for for what can take over when we have the opportunity to do so, if we ever do. You've talked about uh, exhaustion, but I wonder if you personally feel exhausted. I mean, you're still so involved in the the intellectual ideas, the intellectual hard work of understanding the post-war period. I wonder if you feel much hope for the future or if you feel there are times that you yourself are just exhausted by it well for sure i mean i'm i'm effectively in exile now i've been in exile for a couple of years now but it's, it's i made the decision last year after lokman slim was assassinated so i haven't been back actually we're talking in february it's, since february 2020 i haven't been back and i don't know when i will be back there are lots of people that maybe haven't made that decision or can't because of visa issues or whatnot but you know have taken a step back from politics have simply Cho- you know, chosen to to dedicate their energies elsewhere, which I completely understand the, this this instinct to do. Because at the end of the day, uh, you are worried that something can happen to you. This is the thing about Lebanon: is that we don't have one Assad regime, for example, to fear in the same way. We have smaller ones that obviously is a blessing in many ways that we don't have to run for our lives all the time. But in other ways, it makes it also more difficult to know what the risks are, to actually know when is when is it too dangerous to challenge the status quo? When have you crossed the line, as Lokman Slim clearly did last year? Like when when will you get well? What is the thing that will end your life? What is the thing that will maybe uh, force you out of a job? What you know? What what is that red line? You never know what that red line is. The partisans of those political parties usually say. So the red line is the warlord, you know, etc. All of those warlords and oligarchs. But other than that, you don't really know when what the red line is. And so that obviously creates a situation, and it's happened in my own personal life, in the life of many of my friends, where you sort of have to not keep your mouth shut. You can there's still more room for criticism in Lebanon of those leaders than, than you have in, well, most of the Arab world for that matter. You, we, we're still luckier in that respect, although I'm not sure lucky is the term for it. But we have we have a bit more room um, to maneuver through, through all of these things. But you don't know what the limit is. Sorry, maybe I'm repeating myself, but you don't know what the limit is. And because of that, it makes it very difficult to plan 
for the future accordingly. So essentially, yes, many people are on survival mode. And once you have figured that part out, once you've figured out how to secure your short-term future, you know, having enough of an income, having enough of savings, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, maybe then you can start thinking a few months ahead, a few years ahead, which is why for me, it's impossible to imagine the short-term future in Lebanon other than to say something is probably going to happen or many things are probably going to happen. It's just unlikely. I think that this, the way we think, the way things are right now are going to continue for very long. The Friday's Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.